0: Before we jump in, I do just real quickly want to make uh, everyone aware of something exciting in the life of our church. And so I know not everyone here is a member uh, at Renewal Church, but last Sunday we had a members meeting, and at that meeting, uh, we introduced uh, a candidate uh, to serve as a pastor here at Renewal Church. This uh, person, his name is Matt Oberhelman. He is recommended to help lead the worship here at Renewal and serve as a pastor. So back in January, we put together a team that included four of our church members and myself and Rich Diaz, and over the last several months, we've been praying, asking that God would um, reveal who would be a shepherd here, who God would have lead us. And so after many interviews and meetings and times of prayer, um, Matt Oberhelman was recommended last Sunday. And so we're excited. That's a, an exciting time for our church. But um, right now we're in the middle of a two week um, prayer time where we're asking the Lord as a church, God, is this the way that you want to go? And so next Sunday, I just want to make you aware of this. Next Sunday, Matt will lead us in worship. Uh, he will be here. Um, and part of that is for us to see him and how God has worked in his life and how. Uh, God has wired him to lead worship and asking God, okay, God, is this the shepherd uh, that you would have lead us, and for him too um, he 's asking God, God, is this the place uh, where you would have me lead and uh, shepherd and so I just wanted to make you aware that next week he will be here, and I just want to challenge you and encourage you to pray um, you know there 's been several people that have made comments that you know this is just kind of it 's just kind of going through the motions. well, the reality is. If, if, if God is speaking to us, we want to trust that if, if he is not the shepherd to lead us, we want to know that. Um, and if he is, we want to know that as a faith family. So I encourage you to be here next week, uh, and I encourage you to pray, uh, because this is a big decision in the life of our church. Um, and we believe God is moving us forward to this next season, um, but we want to pray. We, do not, we cannot do the work of God without God. We can't just make decisions and say, God, I hope you're okay with that. Um, We want to be led by God. And so I encourage you uh, to pray. Now, let's talk about Mark chapter 13. If you have already read ahead, you know where we are going today. And um, I can promise today uh, there will be a few of you who will be bored, but most of you will be on the edge of your seat because we are talking about the end times, kind of. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Um, But let me read to you chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, For, the nation, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven awake. Well, if there is one topic that is always interesting to Christians, it is to talk about prophecy and uh, the end times. I wonder how many times you have heard someone say, or maybe you've even been the one who has said it, um, where you look around at the world and you say, you know all these wars? Did you see what that happened on the news the other day? I think we are in the end times. Anybody ever said that? Yeah, me too. Um, for some believers, there are a few things more exciting then diving deep into the rabbit hole of the end times. I, I remember I became a Christian uh, when I was a teenager, and I'd been a Christian for maybe six months. It was definitely less than a year. And the church I attended in Quiro, Texas, we always had what they called Sunday school hour. So if you grew up in a Baptist church, you know what that is. It's just an hour before the main service where you would gather age-based to study the Bible. And one Sunday morning, I showed up to Sunday school, and the topic that morning was the rapture and the end times. And we spent the majority of that time reading from the Left Behind series uh, in Sunday school, and I left that class traumatized. Like, what have I signed up for? Who are these people, right? Rapture and people being pulled out. Of, like, what in the world is going on? Well, today, we are going to talk about the end times, kind of. Uh, I've titled this sermon, in fact, the end times, and then parentheses, Kind of, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, But first, let me say this. This is a rather difficult text to preach on, right? There are several differing viewpoints on how to understand what Jesus is saying here. In my study this week, I found that the only thing that commentators, pastors, and scholars agreed on was that these are some of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret and to understand, and folks that I would normally go to in my study. I say, okay, let's see what this person has to say about this. Let's see what this person has to say about this. No one agreed with each other. They all disagreed. And then by the end of my study this week, I found myself disagreeing with myself about what I believed. And I found myself more confused than when I began. And that was actually pretty hard for me to deal with (laughs) um, because I had always understood this text a certain way, to be honest. Um, I just assumed that I understood, right? But as I began to study, I realized that I was, I was wrong about some, some things. And I'll talk about that. But I found myself in a little bit disbelief and almost frustrated at the Holy Spirit this week because I, the Holy Spirit was trying to teach me something than I had always, other than what I'd always assumed, if that makes sense. And I found myself almost trying to prove God wrong this week. Like, okay, I'm going to make this make sense, because this is how I've always understood it. And I don't know if you've been in a moment like that when you've read your Bible, but that was me this week. Um, So that's where I'm at today, just being honest. I am walking into this text in faith. Um, But there's a statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith that is actually helpful here, and it is encouraging to me. And here's what a portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Not all parts of the Bible are equally understandable but all that is necessary for an understanding of salvation is made perfectly plain in the scriptures, meaning that there are things mentioned in the Bible that we may never understand or fully agree on, right? But on the matters of sin, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and many others, those things are made perfectly clear. And there are some things in this text that I still don't fully understand, and there are probably some things in this text that you don't fully understand. But Today, I am going to argue that a number of the verses and familiar language that we have, these assumptions that we have about the end of the world, actually isn't what this is talking about. So with that said, let's jump in. Mark 13 is sometimes referred to, or all the time, uh, referred to as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. It's called that, it's called that because this entire conversation happens on the Mount of Olives, the parallel uh, stories are in Matthew twenty four and Luke twenty one. We'll go to Matthew twenty four a few different times, and how many people and some scholars typically interpret Mark chapter thirteen is that Mark chapter thirteen is referring to the build up to Jesus's returning um, to Jesus's return at the end of all things. That before Jesus comes back, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There will be an antichrist. Um, there will be desolate, there will be famines. There will be natural disasters and then there will be a great tribulation. And after that great tribulation, Jesus will come on the clouds, gather his elect, and that will be the end of all things. And some of you sitting in here, that may be how you understand these passages. Um, And if you do, that's okay. But just so you know from the front, front, I'm going to push back on that understanding today. Because as I studied this week, I've come to a slightly different understanding of this chapter. And by the end of our time today, some of you will come up to me and say, you know, wow, Colton, I never really thought of it that way. I never really saw that. Thank you for for sharing that with us. Some of you um, are going to come up to me and say, you know, Colton, you're not a heretic. You're not a heretic. But you might just be a little bit crazy, and you're wrong. And if that's your conclusion... That's okay. I can still be your pastor. You can still be uh, attend church here. We can still be friends. These verses aren't referring to any any core doctrines or matters of salvation. And then there will be a third group that will say, "Cool, when's lunch?" Right? Um, You just don't care. Um, But I will say there are some dangers in misinterpreting this text. Okay, if we aren't careful, we will take this chapter, interpret it a specific way and go, okay, what does this say about the war in Ukraine? We'll look through the lens, and we'll say, okay, what does this say about the war in Ukraine? What does this say about inflation? What does this say about the refugee crisis? And what I struggled with this week was not taking my 21st century eyes and only trying to understand these verses within my context. Now, there are some things that we can take from this text and apply it to our lives. It is the Word of God, after all, and we'll talk about that. But what we, must attempt, uh, what we must attempt to do today is ask a very specific question. What did the words of Jesus mean to the people he was saying them to? How are the people that he is talking to understanding the things that he's saying? So let me give you my summary of chapter 13 right here at the front, and then we'll walk through it. So here's my summary on what I believe is happening in Mark chapter 13. I believe all the signs and predictions in verses 3 through 31 are referring to the events leading up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So the Roman Jewish war began around 66 A.D. Titus came in, and by 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was overthrown. Now, verses 32 through 37, I believe, are about the return of Christ at the end of all things, but I am of the belief that everything before that is between the death of Jesus and the fall of the temple. So in that case, the signs have already taken place. Okay, so to be clear, I believe that everything talked about in verses 3 through 31 were concerning the time between Jesus' death and the fall of the temple in 70 AD. This means that we should not come to this chapter trying to interpret the events happening today or events that might happen in the future in an attempt to figure out when Jesus might come back. It means that the abomination of desolation has already happened. It means that the tribulation mentioned here has already happened, okay? Now, that raises some difficult questions. How are we to understand verses 24 through 27, where it talks about the coming of the Son of Man? Or perhaps verse 10, and this gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The correlating verse in Matthew 24 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And this portion was actually very painful for me this week because standing in front of you now, I'm convinced that I've taught this verse incorrectly in the past. And that was actually very hard for me to admit. This is one of the verses that I fought against. Um, And we'll get into why I think that later and then what I think that actually uh, means. But before we go into some specifics, let me give you four reasons why I think we should understand verses 3 through 31 as something that has already happened, okay? And not something that is going to happen. So first reason, I believe that. Um, We have to acknowledge the connection with Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed in verse 2 and the reference to these things in verse four. So look at verse two. It says, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're leaving the temple and Jesus says, hey, you see all this? It's going to be destroyed. And then privately, Peter, James, and John ask him in verse four, tell us when will these things be? And when will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? So he says, they say, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen? Which things? The things that Jesus just told them would happen. The temple is coming down. And they ask, okay, when is the temple coming down? That's the first reason. The connection in verse 2 and verse 4 between the temple and these things. Second reason, there are geographical and cultural specifics in these instructions. So for example, look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If that is an instruction for what Christians should do during that time, the time that they are alive, then this text becomes confusing. How are we going to flee Judea? Right? How are we going to flee to the mountains? If this was written for the Jews, then who could see their country being invaded by the Romans, who they could, they were in Judea and they could physically run to the mountains. Then that makes sense. Third reason, there is a direct transition in the conversation in verse 32. So look at verse 32. He says, Jesus, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So Jesus says, concerning that day, that hour, no one knows. There is a transition from Jesus talking about these things to something else. Now he seems to be talking about, and we'll go more into this. Now he seems to be talking about another day, another hour. If you flip to Matthew's account, it'll be on the screen, but you can go in your own Bible. And Matthew's account, in Matthew 24, verse 3, he makes this a little bit clearer. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So the disciples were thinking that those two things would happen at the same moment. So the destruction of the temple and his return, those would happen simultaneously, okay? And so Jesus tells them explicitly here, here's what to look for before the fall of Of the temple. But as for my return concerning that day, the end of the age, he says, I don't know when that will happen. Only the Father knows. He separates them, he makes them two different things. Now, most people who are passionate about the end times, and maybe you're one of them, are very interested in finding the signs that lead up to the end times. And there are other things that Revelation talks about that we can look for. But here he says, here are the signs, wars, earthquakes, false prophets, and so on. But then it's confusing in verse 32 when he says, but concerning that day, no one knows. So if you're looking at this entire section as if it is all talking about the end times, then it's hard to explain why Jesus would know a lot about some things, but about this other thing he doesn't know. It makes more sense if the signs come before the fall of Jerusalem. He says, as for his return, no one knows. All right, last reason, and then we'll get into some specifics. Uh, Look at verse 30. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you interpret this chapter uh, as if the entirety of it is talking about the end times, then verse 30 is very confusing. And it all depends on how you define what Jesus means by generation. Some will say generation is a very broad term. It means uh, unbelieving people. It means the Jewish race. It doesn't have to mean a specific generation, but that argument is inconsistent with how Jesus has used this word throughout all the Gospels. The word generation occurs 27 times in the Gospel. In the book of Mark, it appears four times. So if you go back to Mark 8, 12, which by the way, if we need to stop and do some jumping jacks at some point, you just let me know. If you were ever gonna sleep through any sermon that I would not blame you would be this one, okay? Um, But stay with me because it's, this is fascinating. Um, Mark eight twelve. it says he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He's talking about the people right in front of him. Uh, another one is Mark nine nineteen, 19, uh, where he says he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Um, and so in Mark thirteen thirty, when he says this generation, I believe he's not talking broadly about all generations. He's talking about them, those who were in front of him. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So you right here with me, all these things are going to take place before your generation passes away. Now, let me talk about verse 10 for a second. Because this is what I—so maybe this is therapeutic for myself. Um, let me talk about verse 10. And this gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Because I'm telling you, guys, I did not want to accept that I had taught this verse incorrectly in the past. I did not want to do it. And, and so and, and my question was, okay, if, if it's not talking about this, then I don't know what it means. Uh, in the past, I've taught this verse, and it's correlating one in Matthew 24, by saying, okay— before Jesus comes back, every people group in the world will hear the gospel. And then, and only then, will our king return. Now, let me make something clear. I still believe that the church must make it a priority to bring the gospel to every people group in the world. That's something that I am very passionate about, and I pray that our church, our faith family, is very um, passionate about bringing the gospel to the nations. But the question I had was, okay, If the gospel being proclaimed to all nations is not a precursor to his return, then what does this verse mean? And admitting this to you humbles me. Um, I was a little embarrassed that I am a little embarrassed that I taught it incorrectly for so long, but I'm not perfect. And so here's what I think now. When Jesus says the whole world here, I think he is referring to the regions of the world that the disciples know. He is speaking to them about things that they know. They know the temple, they know Judea, and they know the mountains. What they knew was the Mediterranean world around them, the region surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And using the phrase, the world, was common in the New New Testament to describe what was known in their day. Let me give you some examples. Luke 2, 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world... Should be registered. Do you think that means every single person that existed on the globe at that point, or to the world that they knew, right? Acts eleven twenty eight. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So in many places, world has a limited meaning uh, in comparison to what we would give that meaning. So when we say the whole world, we know a lot more, right? And Colossians one 6, Paul is talking about the gospel, and he says, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. <clears throat> in the whole world. In the whole world, it is bearing fruit and, increase, and increasing as it also does among you. So according to Paul, the gospel has already come to the whole world. According to Colossians 1.6, shouldn't Jesus have already come back? Romans 1.8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So to be clear, I don't think this demotivates us to go to the nations with the gospel. The reality is that there is much to be done around the world. There are people today who have never heard the name of Jesus, and there are other parts of scripture where God makes it clear that he has tasked his people with taking the gospel to all peoples. But I also want to make sure that we are teaching God's word faithfully, right? We are teaching it correctly. So if verses 3 through 31 are things that have already happened. Can we know that they have happened? Do we know that they have how do we know that they have happened? Well, one of the most fascinating things is that we know that many, if not all, of those thing, these things that Jesus mentions in th- verses three through thirty-one have happened because we have the book of Acts. Okay? We know what happened right after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus is going to tell them what to expect uh, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And we have what happened in that time period. In verse 6, he says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you actually see Acts deal time and time again with false teachers, false prophets, these imposters. In Acts 5.36, there's a a man named Thaddeus. Anybody know Thaddeus, right? He had gathered a large following. Uh, He ends up getting killed and all his followers are scattered. Uh, And then in verse 37 in Acts 5, uh, it talks about a Galilean named Judas. In Acts 8, we see a man named Simon Magus. We see a man named Bar-Jesus in chapter 15. We see an unnamed Egyptian in chapter 21. These were all false teachers and prophets. At the end of verse 8, it talks about earthquakes and famines, Okay. Uh, we just read in Acts eleven twenty eight where Agatha says there's going to be a famine in the whole world. There were known famines. There were three main known famines during the reign of Claudius, which is what Acts eleven twenty eight 28 mentions. As far as earthquakes go, do you remember the story of Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16? How did they escape? There was an earthquake, right? And remember the Roman jailer was there, and, and he's about to kill himself, and Paul and Silas are like, hey, don't do it. We're still here, Right? And there were other earthquakes recorded during this time. It's interesting. If you read the book of Acts, with all of these things in your mind, all the things that Jesus mentions in Mark chapter 13, you will notice that Luke, the author of Acts, is intentional in including specific things in the book. And I think part of that reason is to show everything that Jesus predicted happens in the book of Acts. False teachers, famines, earthquakes, persecution, the apostles standing before Councils and kings. So let me also be honest with you about something. For many of us, I bet you're like me, where you come to this chapter in Mark chapter 13 and it's kind of like, it feels random. Anybody feel, ever felt like that? It's, it feels random. It's almost like you get to Mark chapter 11 and 12 and it feels like, okay, here we go, right? Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's overturning tables, right? He's getting in the religious leaders' faces. He's picking a fight with the leaders. Of the Jewish people. And you get the feeling, okay, now we're at the meat of the book. Everything has been leading to this. And then Jesus starts talking about famines and earthquakes and all these things that feel random. And um, my guess is that when you got to this in your little Bible reading plan, you went, okay, and then you just moved on, right? Because the next chapters you get the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, and his death. I think the book of Acts, in part, is a historical account of how everything Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And so the people could look back and say, he told the apostles that this would happen. And they look at it and go, he is sovereign. He did know. He knew exactly what we were about to walk into. Now, there are some confusing parts in Mark 13. Um, Parts if we are to interpret that these things have already happened, then we have to understand some things. Because I'm sure there's some of you in here that says, okay, Colton, you have not explained this yet. Um, One of those things is the abomination of desolation. Y'all want to talk about that? Good, I do too. Um, What is that? Okay, the abomination of desolation. It's an Old Testament reference. It comes from Daniel 11, verse 31. So let me read that to you. It should be uh, on the screen. Daniel 11, 31 forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So Daniel Daniel prophesied this about 500 years before Jesus uh, was born, and it was fulfilled about 200 years before Jesus in 167 BC. There was a guy named Antichus Epiphanes, okay? Antichus Epiphanes Epiphanes came in, and he abolishes the sacrifices in the temple, and he begins to sacrifice pigs, and he sets up what is referred to as an abomination in the temple. We know all of this because of a book called Maccabees. It's not an inspired book. It doesn't belong in our Bible, but there is some helpful history, and in it, it talks about how Antichus, he came in, and he renamed the temple after an Olympian named Zeus, okay? And it talks about how the Jews, they couldn't keep the Sabbath, how they couldn't make sacrifice, and they profaned the temple. And many believe this is what Daniel predicted. This is a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 11. This is the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Jesus in Mark chapter 13, he uses that same language. And he is saying to his disciples here, there will be another desecration of the temple. What exactly this was? We aren't completely sure. It could just be that the temple was destroyed. But Jesus uses a pronoun in connection with the phrase. He says, he. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. There are a few theories about this. The most popular theory is that in 67 AD, when Jerusalem was under siege by the Romans, the Zealots, the revolutionary, revolutionary party of the Jews, they made the temple their headquarters and they appointed their own high priest. They appointed their own high priest and he was a false high priest. He did his own sacrifices and it outraged the rest of the Jews. You can read about it in history, right? They were not happy about this false high priest being appointed and they believed that his actions was an abomination that desecrated the temple. So therefore, they believed that he was the abomination of desolation, that that act desecrated the temple because you had a false high priest doing sacrifices he should not have been doing. And so it could be when you see him standing where he ought not to be, standing in the temple as a false high priest. And he says, when you see that happening, when that is occurring, run to the mountains, right? And that's what they did they ran. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Colton, I can see how you could come to the conclusion up until verse 23. I can see how you come to the conclusion that Jesus is talking about the fall of the temple up until that point, but you still not have explained verses 24 through 27. So let's do that, okay? Verse 24, let me read it to you. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun, listen to this language, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Does that sound like the end of the world? Yeah, it does. (laughs) Uh, He talks about a tribulation. The sun and the moon seem to be gone, stars falling from the sky, the heavens are shaken. Now, before I move on, to be clear, as the church, we do believe Jesus is coming again. Much of the scriptures testify to that. But I believe here Jesus is saying something else. Okay. first let's talk about the tribulation. He also mentions the tribulation in verse 19 where he says, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Also to be clear, I do believe that there will be an intensification of trial near the end of all things. That is going to happen. Revelation talks about that. Other places in the scripture talk about that. But here he is, I think he's saying, During this time, Jewish people, it will be a trying time. There will be a tribulation. Your temple will be destroyed. Chaos will be present. False teachers will rise. It will be a difficult time. The question is why does he say such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be? If you're like me, like I was earlier this week, I was like, okay, so this is the worst they're ever going to have it. What about the Holocaust? Was that not worse than, than this? Well, we have to understand that the Bible will sometimes talk in extremes to help us understand the seriousness of what is happening or what is about to happen. Let me give you an example. Exodus ten 14, it'll be on the screen. Um, this is um, the freeing of God's people from Egypt. It says, "...the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has never been before, nor ever will be again." So does this mean, according to this text, there will never be a larger concentration of locusts than this one in history? I know we're talking about exciting things today, okay? Uh, Joel chapter 2, let me read this to you. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Now, if you're familiar with Joel, what's he talking about here? He's talking about a locust plague, right? So the question is, are we to take Joel literally? Which one of these is the greater locust plague? Because they both claim that title, the one in Exodus or the one in Joel. People will ask, okay, but do you take the Bible literally? And we have to define what we mean by that. What most people mean and what I mean is, do you believe that the Bible is true? That every word God has intended to say, he has said, and he has not made any mistakes. But every word in the Bible is not literal. When Jesus says, I am the gate, does he mean that he's metal, that he can rust? No, we understand it's a figure of speech. So in regards to tribulation, I would argue that Jesus is using language to help them understand calamity, chaos, destruction, And then in the next verses in 24 and 25, Jesus uses cosmic language to describe the calamity that's going to happen on earth. He says, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. I don't think we're meant to take those words literally. God will do the same thing in other places in the Bible. He will use cosmic language to describe what is happening on earth. Isaiah 13, 10, which is about God's judgment on Babylon. He says, for the stars of the heavens uh, and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. It is common for the Bible to use vocabulary to describe what will happen on earth by using the cosmos to explain the seriousness of it. And then we get to verse 26, and this is my favorite portion. Uh, Verse 26 in Mark 13, where it says, "'And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds "'with great power and glory.'" Now, this is a clear reference to Daniel 7. We've quoted it many times in the Gospel of Mark. So let me read to you Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, look closely at verse 13. When the Son of Man is in the clouds and he is going from one place to another, where is he going? He's going to the Ancient of Days, to the Father. The point of this passage is not to say that Jesus will be coming to earth. From the clouds, but rather that Jesus is going to the Father, to the Ancient of Days, and the Father, the Ancient of Days, is going to give him dominion and glory, that he is the true King and the only King. Now, I would say the text in Mark is not about Jesus coming again from the heavens through the clouds, but it is about how Jesus has been given dominion over all things through his death, resurrection, ascension and exaltation. He has come to the ancient of days and he has received glory. If you look at Mark fourteen 62, we'll, we'll talk about this verse in a couple of weeks. Uh, the high priest asked Jesus, hey, are you the Christ? And it says, Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. If you look at the parallel account in Matthew, Jesus, it says, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, notice that, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, you will see it. You will see that I have dominion. You will see that I have power. You will see that I have authority. It makes more sense if Jesus is saying, from now on, after my death, resurrection and ascension, to heaven. You will see me ascended, seated at the right hand of power and coming to the clouds where the Ancient of Days will exalt me. He has ascended and he has been exalted. And then you get verse 27, where he gathers his chosen people, he gathers his elect. What do you see in Acts? What is the book of Acts about? You see the gathering of God's people, the Gentiles, right? So many Arguments and conversations about what they should eat and circumcision and how the Gentiles have been included in God's family. And you see in the book of Acts the gathering of God's people to build his kingdom. He says in Acts 1:8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what they do in the book of Acts. They go to the ends of the earth and they gather God's chosen people. I know this is a lot, okay? Let me close this section by pointing out one thing, because I'm almost out of town. You might kick me out of town. I'm almost out of time. Um, Verses 1 through 31 are an encouragement to us, because it shows that Jesus, one, cares about his people enough to warn them of what's coming. It's fascinating that Jesus would know with such detail all the things that are going to happen leading up to the destruction of the temple. And it's even more fascinating that he would tell them what to do when these things are happening. I think it's an act of love to his disciples to warn them and, and instruct them. In the same way, he has told us what we should expect in our lives, in this world. He has told us to not be anxious. He has told us Um, that the world will hate us. He has told us of his love for us. He has told us how to live. He has told us about the end, what will happen. He has told us about how he has adopted us. He has told us that we should be living sacrifices. He's told us many things, and it would do us good to trust him like they did. The Christians ran to the mountains, and they survived during this time. Not a lot of people did, but the ones who went to the mountains did. And they went because Jesus told them to go. And so it would do us well to listen to the words of Jesus because he knows and he has loved us by giving us his word to reveal to us what is true. The second reason we can find encouragement in these verses. If verses 26 and 27 have already happened, the Son of Man, seated, dominion, power, glory, coming on the clouds, If verses 26 and 27 have already happened, then we can know with certainty that Jesus is on the throne right now, seated in power. We're not waiting for him to come to the Ancient of Days. He's already done it. And the Father has already given him dominion and power. We can pray and know that he's there. Just like them, when tribulation is happening around them, literal chaos, people dying, they can know that Jesus has ascended and he has been crowned with glory on the throne. And as First John says, he is our advocate. I know that's a lot, but if it's true, it has great significance for how we walk and how we live and how we pray in this world. Because if he has been seated and exalted by the Father and he is on the throne right now, we can have confidence that when we pray, he hears us. When he suffers, he knows. That he is leading us Right now. Now, he finishes um, in verse 32 talking about the end of all things, his final return, and he tells them to stay awake. In other words, I think he is saying in verse 32 and on, hey, don't lose hope, don't lose faith. I don't know when I will return, only the Father knows. He walks him through all the things that are about to happen to them, right? And he finishes by saying, hey, look, I, I want you to know I am coming back, and your only responsibility is to stay awake. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. I don't know when I will return. Only the Father, awake, father knows, so stay awake. Keep your eyes on me and have faith that I am on the throne. And so let me finish by saying this. I know that there's a lot of things in here that are confusing, and I may have confused you even more, okay? Here's what's so amazing about Mark chapter 13. It's put right in the middle between the temple and Jesus' arrest. And he's been walking through how he's going to abolish all the rules and rituals that they had, and he is taking the place of how people, how their generation, how we think about how we are saved And he comes to his disciples and he says, this system that you see, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. And there will be chaos, false teachers, false prophets. There will be famine. There will be war. You will have a tribulation like you have never known before. And then in the next two, three chapters, you see his death where they felt, I I can only assume that they just felt lost, like they had no hope. But then he arises from the grave. And then as you go throughout the book of Acts, they see false teachers. They see famines. They see earthquakes. They stand before councils, right? The Holy Spirit speaks on their behalf as they talk to people. And time and time again, they look back. And they said, he was right. My encouragement for you is to take a close look at your life and look back at his word and look back at how God has sustained you and how he's been faithful to you and your courage and your confidence will be built up to say, I can move forward. Because he's with me. He's seated on the throne and his word is true. I can guarantee you in access what they did. What he said happened, so now I believe. And I will move forward, despite everything else. <laughs>